Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Sport Business Finance Weekly Podcast, where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal-making and finance. I'm your co-host, U.S. Editor Eric Fisher from Sport Business, and as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and uh, you know, getting deeper into October here, as we said before, it's a, it's a great time of the year to be uh, working in the industry, to be a fan. How are we doing this week? Uh, doing very well, Eric, enjoying the baseball playoffs, looking forward to the beginning of the NBA regular season. And actually, we're only about six weeks away from World Cup. So lots of stuff uh, interesting on the horizon. So we're going to be going very heavy on basketball this week. We've got a number of uh, events happening in and around the beginning of the 2022-23 NBA season, which starts uh, in earnest the regular season on October 18th. But uh, as we close out the preseason here, there's a lot happening in and around basketball. So we're going to go very heavy on basketball this week. But first, we're going to have a football conversation. We're going to have a chat with Sandra Douglas Morgan. She is the newly hired president of the NFL's Las Vegas Raiders. A lot happening with her hire and in and around that franchise in Las Vegas as a sports market broadly. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Sandra Douglas Morgan, the new president of the National Football League's Las Vegas Raiders. The attorney and former Nevada gambling regulator this past summer took the role and in so doing became the first black woman to hold the president position with an NFL team. The former chair of the Nevada Gaming Control Board, Morgan most recently was of counsel with prominent law firm Covington and Burling, and before that was city attorney for the city of North Las Vegas, Nevada. All told, Morgan boasts nearly 20 years of industry experience in and around the gaming industry in related matters such as regulatory issues and cybersecurity. In her current position, she oversees one of the NFL's most prominent team brands, which plays at one of the league's newest and most advanced facilities, Allegiant Stadium, which in turn will be the venue for Super Bowl 58 in 2024. Morgan is host committee vice chair for that upcoming Super Bowl, and she has deep Las Vegas roots, having grown up there and received her law degree from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Sir welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Eric and Chris. So I detailed, uh, you know, in a nutshell, your uh, professional background there. As this opportunity with the Raiders was unfolding earlier this year, what attracted you to that opportunity? And how did that background that I sort of briefly detailed there prepare you for this role that you now have? Well, it wasn't necessarily like a structured kind of process. I had an opportunity to meet Mark, Mark Davis about a year ago. And we always kept in, in touch. And he just kind of mentioned that he'd heard about me from some other people kind of in the community. And we were looking for ways to maybe collaborate and work together on a few things. And when this opportunity arose with some of the turnover that happened, at least on the, on the business side, then we finally sat down and kind of had a more formal conversation about it. But it was really important for him to understand what was important to me, how I was as a leader, and for me to understand, you know, his vision and how he wanted that to be implemented um, here in 
Las Vegas. Um, I think my skill set over the last 20 years, whether it be as, you know, obviously being an attorney for quite some time, a chief legal officer over at the city, and then chairing the Gaming Control Board, and that has, you know, 400 employees in five different cities across the state of Nevada and um, covers everything from audit, tax and license, investigations, law enforcement, and technology. I think, you know, now with the with the growth of sports betting, states are kind of starting those gambling regulatory bodies, but in Las Vegas, that is the regulatory body to have because of the, the the large breadth of the casino industry and gaming industry here in Nevada. And so, you know, being able to to chair large organizations and institutions like that um, definitely helped, I think, give me the, the skill set needed to, to continue to work and, and have this amazing opportunity to lead the Raiders. Sandra, as you embark on this journey, what are your most important goals for the Raiders organization? You know, for me, it's really important to honor the rich and, and deep Raiders legacy. And that is about just protecting, you know, the brand and the shield and, and, and honoring it and knowing that, you know, the rich history from 1960 to now, championing, um, you know, opportunity, community and inclusion. That is something that, uh, you know, I feel the, the obligation to let Las Vegas, the Southern Nevada community and the entire state to know about. There's a long legacy of greatness here at the Raiders because they've cultivated a place of belonging. Anyone can be a part of Raider Nation. Doesn't matter where you look like, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter how you grew up. You know, we can all be Raiders. And, and that is, I think, definitely why, you know, our Raider fans are some of the most loyal in the world. I think pursuing a, a culture here that would d- demand and expect the excellence that I know that they see on the football field, on the business side, is something that um, is incredibly important to me. And that is important through not only communication and respect, but also accountability. That th- those are going to definitely going to be my top two uh, goals. And just, you know, it's very important to, to mark. And it is to me as a, as a native Las Vegan to make sure that we're fulfilling our promise to the Southern Nevada community. When the Raiders, you know, decided to move here, it wasn't just to kind of be a, a team and, and play on Sundays and go home. Um, they, we want this community to understand that we are here for the long term and that we expect to really be part of the fabric of this community. And so I'll definitely, um, that is something that's personal to me. It's not just something that a company kind of comes in and does some community service and leaves. It's, it's part of what we do and how we as an organization think to make sure we're making everyone, everyone around us better. You mentioned Mark Davis, the owner, and he, he's obviously cultivated a reputation over the years of being a hands-on owner and certainly his father before him. As you're pursuing these goals and what you've just detailed here, what is that day-to-day interaction like? Uh, what is sort of the frequency of contact? How often are you guys working together? What is that back and forth like? Well, I can't tell you all of that, but, <laughs> good stuff. but look, I can tell you that I'm incre- incredibly honored and privileged to have a very normal and frequent rapport with Mark. You know, I think it's important as we grow and get to know each other better too in these roles, you know, I, it's, it's going to take time. I, I know what, I, I, it's going to take time for me to really know what his passion is. Obviously he bleeds silver and black. This is, you know, his, his life. It's his, it's been a commitment. It's part of his legacy and his family's legacy. And so it, it takes time for me to understand, okay, what, you know, specific areas are, are important to you? What do you want to hear from me? Um, what things are you maybe not concerned about? And so we communicate often. And I think that's important, not just for him to understand what I'm doing here in headquarters every day and at the stadium, but for me too, to understand, you know, what's, what's really important to him, what he, what his vision is on certain matters. Of course, we've spoken more broadly, but as issues arise, I definitely um, think it's important that, that he's informed and engaged. And he is, this is his team. And he cares about 
deeply every single fan and every single decision he makes is based on how does this affect the fan. Well, a big goal for any organization is winning on the field. It's been a little bit of a tough start for the Raiders this year, although there's a lot of games left. How does the performance on the field impact kind of the mood of the organization and maybe more specifically the business discussions that you have? Well, obviously, who everyone wants to win. <laughs> and so, you know, moods are definitely a much lighter and I'll try to be positive when, um, you know, when, when we're winning. And so, yeah, Monday was great. Monday was great because we had a great win on Sunday. So we're focused on the future, obviously, and going to focus on, you know, obviously Kansas City coming up in, in Monday. But, you know, we know that the business side we're going to do, and I've told, you know, football this, everything we need to do to make sure that not only business, but football has the resources it needs to succeed. We're here and the Raiders are here because we're a football team. And, and that's what we need to focus on. However, you know, it's not really however, that's, that's just the fact of the matter. But as I sit here right now, I'm in an amazing studio by Silver and Black Productions with very, very talented people that are, you know, um, filming and following our, our team and also documenting our legacy and, you know, making sure our, our traditions and our history is being captured and um, just providing amazing content on our website and on our social media platforms. And, you know, we have an amazing sponsorship and, and corporate sponsorship team. We have Raider Image where we have our, our apparel and clothing lines. And so all of these different business verticals are here, you know, because we've been able to have such an iconic football team and an amazing brand. So we have to focus on that. And now we have an amazing stadium world-class stadium, award-winning stadium that is having so many different um, events, concerts, and, you know, other sporting events that we can obviously market, not only for Southern Nevada, but again, the 40 million visitors that come here from Las Vegas. So yes, we want to win, but we don't let, you know, losses, we got to focus on next week and know and focus on the other amazing assets we have in the organization. Long before you arrived in the NFL, there was a lot of discussion around the league about issues of diversity inclusion those discussions are obviously continuing on you now taking this role is a big step forward of course in terms of representation and progress but as you look across the league how do you think the league is doing on the dni front and and how can you and the raiders organization help advance that cause I have been definitely encouraged by the communications and honestly the collegiality I've had with other club presidents. And those include, you know, they may include black presidents, they may include female presidents or other executives, but also non, um, you know, people that don't fall within that category as well about, you know, just being welcoming and, and encouraging my success and just being a resource for me. It's, it, I've, I have, um, wasn't sure what to expect in that regard, but I've really been, um, comforted by knowing that so many people are, are willing to reach out and help wherever possible. So I do believe that there's been good progress. I think there's all, there can always be greater progress, but there's definitely been good progress. And you've seen a lot of that, you know, over the last several years. For the Raiders, I'm, I'm happy to help, obviously, and be included in any discussions that the league may have. I think, that, I know that they know that. And again, the league itself, outside of individual teams, has been incredibly uh, welcoming to me as well. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that. But the, the Raiders, this is not new for the Raiders, right, to make some kind of um, make groundbreaking decisions and bold decisions that others have not made. And Al Davis and the Raiders have done that, you know, going back to 1960 since the team's inception. And, you know, whether it be in the 60s, you know, Al Davis making the decision to move the AFL All-Star All -Star game from New Orleans because they're 
black players weren't being treated properly or hiring the first, you know, Latino head coach to win a Super Bowl, Tom Flores or Art Shell, the first black coach, Jamie Trask is the first female president. So this isn't something new for the Raiders. So even though I'm the first black female president, the Raiders have a very long legacy of championing diversity and inclusion. And it wasn't, those decisions weren't made because of who those people or the categories that those people may have fallen into. It's because of their qualifications and their competence and their experience. And so I'm just proud to be a part of that long list of Raiders, of of the legacy of the Raiders, and happy to help and share my thoughts and and any um, opinions that I may have uh, with the NFL. But I am encouraged uh, of the progress that the league has made as a whole um, over the the last few years. Sandra, across the sports landscape, we've seen really in recent months some issues surrounding alleged misbehavior, you know, in the Phoenix situation in the NBA, Washington in the NFL, the NWSL, there was a report out this week about some of the challenges there. What can club presidents do to make sure that there is a positive culture, a safe environment, and avoid some of the mistakes that have been, you know, again, very much in the news over the past several months and and years, in fact? And I think the, I don't think that's limited, obviously, to the NFL or sports. You've seen kind of those culture changes and shifts, right, all throughout business, whether it be in the entertainment and industry, like Fortune 10, 50, 100 companies, um, clearly the gaming industry that I, that I was involved in as well. And so I think it's important to communicate consistently and often with the workforce and even whether it be with ownership and management and everyone with the organization about the team, the owner, the president's management's expectations, what's expected of employees, how to speak to each other and communicate with each other, having clearly communicated um, a communication mechanism if somebody is being treated improperly or seeing something that they may consider to be unethical or not kind of withholding to a club or team or organization's integrity standards, and really just creating a culture, I think, of accountability. If people don't think things are going to change when they see something that's not happening, that really affects the morale of the organization. No one's going to know everything that's going on in their organization. And if anyone says that, if they have a team of more than, you know, I would say 25 people, that's just, it's just impossible. With that many people, people have spouses, children, friends, and, and just kind of, you know, obviously that, that information can flow very quickly, especially in the age of social media. But I think it's important, and it really starts at the, you know, with, with leadership to really communicate demanding a culture of accountability and respect. Nothing is foolproof. Nothing is going to be 100%. But I think continuing to let employees know that there is, that they'll be held accountable if, if you know, they're not following within either a code of conduct or complying with the law is incredibly important. You've obviously got this long background in the, in the gaming industry and, and the whole world of sports betting here in the United States. These last uh, four and a half years have been quite the roller coaster ride here in terms of possibility, business challenges, business opportunities. As you've seen this all unfold, what is your sense of the progress of legal sports betting across the U.S.? And where do you now see this going forward? Gaming has been legal here for so long. We've been lucky to have such a strong regulatory regime, whether it be for commercial casino gaming or sports betting. And when um, PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, was repealed, where are we at now, four years ago? 
you know, had, had the privilege, honestly, of, of being able to host and communicate with a lot of other states that were in the process of kind of creating their regulatory structures for that. And what you've seen is, I think, a greater acceptance of, I, I would say gambling, but I think it's more of sports wagering, right? We're at about a point of maybe 30 or 31 states now that have legalized sports wagering, whereas obviously for commercial casinos, it's not it's not nearly that high. But I think integrity is is going to be something that is incredibly important and having, you know, accurate data. And those are things that I know that the NFL has really um, discussed. And, and it's something that I think that Nevadans have probably taken for granted because we have a such a strict licensing regime and a very strong kind of disciplinary um, pattern that, you know, when some of those issues have come up, it's really the sports books that have called you know, the regulator and said something, you know, isn't right here. Or, you know, I'm, I'm sensing a movement in the lines. This is something that you may want to monitor. So I think as those um, regulatory bodies kind of continue to mature, they'll they'll be able to handle that. And I think they're, you know, we're doing a great job um, right now with it. But it it's grown quickly. Right. 31 states in, in four years is definitely a significant growth. And I think as long as we focus on having properly licensed and regulated sports betting operators, and giving people an option to kind of bet legally instead of going to the illegal market and doing that in a you know in a strategic and and way you know it's I, I'm all for it again I came from Nevada so I've, I've grown up seeing you know slot machines and in, um, in convenience stores and I've seen sports betting for quite some time and I think um, we we've done it very well here so well given your background in Nevada what do you think has driven Las Vegas now becoming a bona fide boomtown for professional sports. I mean, it's not just that PASPA was overturned, I don't think. Uh, there, there are probably other factors. We've got your club. We've got the NHL club. Other clubs are, are thinking about moving into Las Vegas. There's a Super Bowl. There was a draft. Beyond legalized sports betting or that, that PASPA decision, why do you think Las Vegas has become such an attractive place for professional sports? Because we've been the hospitality and entertainment, you know, capital of the world for so long. And I think being able to provide that high level of customer service definitely translates to to sporting environments and also our growth. You know, when I was growing up, there were 400,000 people here in Southern Nevada. And now we're at about two, a little over two million. I think the statewide, it's over three million. I'm hosting now 40 million visitors coming to Southern Nevada you know, through our airport and having such a strong infrastructure, whether it be hotel rooms and entertainment, the best fine dining ever. It's, it's all of that kind of combined. So someone is able to now go and go to a Raider game, be able to see a show, stay in a five-star hotel and kind of do all of that within a three to four day period. There's not that many places that you can do that. And even when conventions were not up and running again, you had a great drive-in market for gaming kind of as we were kind of coming at coming out of the pandemic, I don't know, we may still be in it, <laughs> who knows? But as things were kind of slowly opening up I and mean, you had a lot of downtime still because the conventions weren't there during the midweek, but we still had strong gaming numbers in Nevada and people were still coming to our games. And so that I think actually helped complement the, you know, the gaming industry and just the general overall Nevada economy um, while things were kind of working out of the pandemic. And I think that um, obviously the, um, the Knights have seen that, the world champion WNBA Aces have definitely um, you know, done that. I mean, the, the stands were completely packed during those, those final games and, and even, even the latter part of the season. And so, I, you know, it shows that Las Vegans and clearly the, some of the visitors that are here love sports. 
And when they're here and they're able to access it all within, you know, a two to three mile radius, there's just so many opportunities in, in the city. And I think that's why we've, we've been able to grow and not just be the entertainment capital of the world, but the sports and entertainment capital of the world as well. And being able to host the Super Bowl in 2024, you know, more people come to Las Vegas now than they do at the Super Bowl. <laughs> so having it now here kind of in our backyard and, and being able to kind of showcase our stadium, we're, we're definitely looking forward to it. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Super Bowl because I did want to get into Super Bowl 58 next. And as I mentioned, you're on the host committee. What can the industry and fans expect for this game coming up in a, in a year and a half? And how does Allegiant Stadium and all the things that it is and can do figure into that? Well, you know, the, it's it's actually the NFL's Super Bowl. It's their event, and they will be, you know, working with us on, on our venue. And I think that, well, I shouldn't say, I think I know just based on being at our at our stadium all the time, we've already been ranked the number one voice of the fan. We have the best food and beverage, the best service, with the best suites. And I think that when people come to the Super Bowl, they'll definitely be back later, whether it be for another event or for a Raider game. Once they're, you know, I think we're going to attract a whole nother type of visitor, that, you know, there's plenty of people to go to every single Super Bowl. It's just part of what they do. You're going to see best in class entertainment, um, amazing concerts that are all going to be part of that week. And the host committee's job is also to, you know, help bring in revenue, celebrate, you know, local businesses and get them involved in some of the Super Bowl efforts. And, um, you know, I was on the Super, I was appointed to the Super Bowl committee before I actually joined the Raiders. And um, just really looking forward to really showcasing, just, just as a Nevadan, showcasing our state on the world's biggest stage for sports. So we're really excited and can't wait for 2024. And we've been able to show that too, whether it be through the draft that we hosted, that the city hosted in April and in the Pro Bowl as well. Sandra, in your first press conference as club president, I believe you alluded to the importance of mentors or mentorship in your career. Who have been your mentors over your career and how do you approach mentorship for some that are kind of in the earlier stages of, of, of their professional careers? I have several and some of them in the public sector, some of them are in the private sector. And it's really that people who were willing, you know, mentorship is a two-way street. It, you know, it takes time to kind of even cultivate that relationship. But I have, I have several mentors, some now in the sports industry that I'm, you know, kind of being engaged with somewhere in the gaming industry, many, many lawyers, just because that's, you know, I've been a lawyer for 20 years and where I kind of started my career. And it's just someone to be able to say, you know, is this something you experienced? And if you have, or if you haven't, you know, how would you navigate this issue? And so I definitely look, I try to pay it forward. I am so proud to be in Nevada and because I was given a scholarship to be able to go to the University of Nevada in Reno, and then uh, was in the third graduating class at the UNLV Boyd School of Law here. And the third graduating class. Yeah. So we only, I mean, I was, and I graduated in 2003. And so that alumni community is incredibly strong. And that com if the community didn't support the law school, we wouldn't be at a point where most of the, you know, managing partners or even, or or members, the law firms here now come from Boyd. It really takes an investment and it takes kind of paying it forward. And that's why I said the community service and just the work that the Raiders have done in the community is incredibly important to me. So I definitely volunteer, whether it be through a mother's organization that I'm a member of, Jack and Jill, the Las Vegas chapter of the Nevada Bar Association, which focuses on primarily helping African-American lawyers, the Asian Community Development Council, where I serve on the advisory board and um, helping them with their, you know, kind of on-campus scholarships and different opportunities. You know, it's, it's incredibly important. And I want people to know, people, whether or not you're raised in Las Vegas or not, you have the opportunity and the ability 
ability to actually excel in the gaming industry or the sports industry now with the growth in sports and being able to create and have an established internship programs for people to work for one of the best teams in the world, something that did not exist when I was growing up here. So um, these are all amazing and honestly magical opportunities now that exist in 2022. We have to make sure the children here in Las Vegas have access to it. These are boom times right now in the NFL, whether you look at the domestic TV ratings, what's happening with all of the uh, advanced internationalization that the league is working on, things happening in and around 32 equity. We could sort of just go down the list. But my question for you is where do you and the Raiders as an organization sort of try to fit into that mosaic of that sort of groundswell of the overall league growth that I'm mentioning? You know, that's part of my, my job is, conti- is to continue to see where those growth opportunities are and how we can, um, you know, grow, grow the brand and obviously grow the team. And, you know, we're the Raiders are one of, of um, a handful of teams that have Mexico is one of our international home markets. And so, you know, we we love our Latino fan base. We love all of our fans, but we know our Latino fan base is is strong and growing. And I'm really looking forward to kind of growing our presence in Mexico and, you know, supporting and continuing to show our our support for the Latino fan base as well. So we're definitely plan on activating there. Um, I think the um, NFL International has done a great job, has been in, um, you know, London, Germany, I want to say Australia, and obviously Mexico is, is, is our kind of international home territory that we'll be focused on. And, uh, you know, I think, I think, really think the best is yet to come. I think people love football, obviously with the numbers, you know, they're not, they're like what they see, you know, on the field. I think they like the see the changes that the NFL has, has done. And, um, you know, we're going to lean into that and see what other, uh, what other opportunities there are for, for the Raiders to continue to grow. But our home, our international home market is, is Mexico. And we'll continue to kind of try to focus on growing that fan base and others as well. Well, clearly a lot happening in and around the Las Vegas Raiders. We're going to continue to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Sandra Douglas Morgan, the team president, for spending this time with us. Thanks, Eric and Chris. Pleasure meeting you both. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly. We want to thank Sandra Douglas Morgan again from the Las Vegas Raiders for spending that time with us and turning our attention now to news of the week. As as promised at the outset, we're going heavy on basketball here in, in preview of the uh, 22-23 season here. And sort of looking broadly at this, I, I kind of, we talked about the NHL before and you know, I, I kind of view, view the personally the NBA in a similar boat here that after, uh, you know, two plus years of a lot of difficulty in and around the COVID-19 pandemic and in part because they're indoor sports and having to deal with perhaps some additional health and safety challenges compared to the outdoor sports. A lot of tough go for a long time, but I, I see a lot of wind to the back of the NBA as they head into this new season. Uh, you know, you've got the Warriors as defending champions, sort of one of those fran- marquee franchises with a lot of swagger back, you know, really sort of normal operations, a lot of international things happening. I just, uh, you know, I curious as to your thoughts, but I, I, I view the NBA as, as really in a, in a much better place as, as really as, as much as they've been, you know, since long before the pandemic started. There, there's certainly a lot of momentum there, Eric, and part of that is driven by, as you mentioned, the Warriors and a great finals matchup they had last year, strong performance on TV and in media generally. They've got their new media rights deal coming up here in the next sort of couple of years. 
So there, there is a lot of good things happening, or there are a lot of good things happening with the NBA. They've also been pretty progressive in the areas of the sort of Web3 Dapper Labs deal, so rare deal, betting. So again, a lot of good momentum for the NBA, and they just launched a new app, which uh, yeah. they believe really brings together a lot of the programming and a lot of the content across their entire ecosystem into one place that they believe will be very compelling for their fans. Yeah, and that's really interesting because as we're taping this, the the NBA is in the midst of their two-game exhibition set in Abu Dhabi, these new games that they've uh, set up with Atlanta and Milwaukee and the United Arab Emirates. And that in and of itself is a big step in their internationalization. And we'll speak to that in a moment here. But while over there, Adam Silver did a press conference uh teeing off these uh, two Abu Dhabi games. And he talked at length about the new app and its importance and really uh, sort of the overarching theme that he was detailing is there's so much happening in the media space right now. He's like, I've been with the NBA for 30 years. There's more coming in the next five years than there has been in the last 30. And this new NBA app is really a central component of this because they're they're recognizing a lot of key trends within one single product that you have all this personalization, customization, watch the game the way you want to watch it embedded in with this app and also really serving as a big clearinghouse that, you know, we've talked at length with baseball and some of these other sports that have put games in a lot of different places, NFL, certainly others in the same boat that fans are finding it increasingly difficult to find a certain game on a certain day. Well, this NBA app seeks to speak directly to that, that that is designed to be really the central starting point on any given day for a basketball fan. Yeah, I think it's going to be very valuable, Eric, because they are in effect curating all of their own content and their partner content in a way that's going to make it easy for fans to find, discover, share, They've also launched the concept or or the program surrounding what they call NBA ID, which is a global membership program, effectively a loyalty program that provides rewards to their fans, other kinds of member benefits. So they're stepping up that engagement and that interaction with their fans to an even greater degree. The other thing that I noticed uh, in in this NBA app announcement and and some of the discussion around it was they have actually lowered the price of league pass to make it more affordable. And I think that's particularly relevant, I would assume, to some some younger fans uh, that you know are not necessarily accustomed to paying big subscription fees and also the proliferation of so many services out there. Uh, so I think that would be very helpful and, and be very fan-friendly in many ways. Yeah, that, that uh, price for that out-of-market package basically cut in half, which is a big step here. But you brought up something really important with this NBA ID, and part of what they're sort of contemplating is really creating sort of a unified link of fandom that really, you know, historically in the industry, what happens in and around ticketing and going to a live event is sort of disconnected from what happens on the media side and watching games online, at home, on TV, what have you. And those two major pieces, these are really kind of the two primary revenue streams for any individual team. They've sort of been disconnected. That NBA ID sort of brings that together. And we've also talked about what teams like the Cavaliers are doing in terms of making this new Bally Sports Plus available to season ticket holders. And I think this is a lot of where some of this innovation that Adam Silver is speaking broadly to really can kind of come to fore is bringing those two previously disparate pieces together in a, in a unified way where there's just sort of this overall notion of fandom, whether it be in person, 
on TV, online, what have you. And it gives the league and the clubs, in a sense, integrated data about oh, yeah. what, uh, what very the fan robust is, data is doing and what the fan is interested in. So it allows you to make special offers to fans who may be interested in a certain kind of program or a certain kind of merchandise. And so that kind of collection and integration of data is something people have been talking about for a long time, and they're working to make that a reality. Yeah, and and working to make that a reality, that's another really important point here, that this is another thing where uh, the NBA, and they're certainly not alone here, but I think they've been recognized as an industry leader in trying to actually initiate change and lead change rather than simply being reactive to change. And there's still a lot of folks in this business who are more reactive to change. And and what I see here through this app and through other initiatives that we're detailing here is a real effort to actually drive that change. Absolutely. And and Adam, especially during his tenure, has been at the forefront of so many things. I remember the editorial he wrote in the New York Times, it's probably eight or nine years ago now, about the benefits of legalization and regulation yeah. of, of of sports betting really made the uh, waters safe for everybody else. Exactly, and they really on the Web three and NFT side, you know, Top Shot was really the product that catapulted that whole digital collectibles realm. And so, in many ways, the the NBA does lead the way in in innovation, and they're continuing to do that. I believe with this app. So it's going to be really interesting over these forthcoming years and within this sort of five-year timeline that uh, Adam Silver sort of detailed for this big wave of change that's coming, how that comes to fore. But in the the short run, we've got a potentially thorny issue in and around the Phoenix Suns and how this sort of plays itself out. We've talked about the Suns a lot here in recent weeks. There's been a really unfortunate situation where uh, there was an independent investigation around the team owner, Robert Sarver, that confirmed a lot of prior allegations around uh, misogynistic, sexist, racist behavior. Those uh, the, That team, along with the WNBA Phoenix Mercury, are now for sale. And the latest development is that uh, Sarver and his advisors, they've now hired Molis and company to lead that team sale. And so the process is now sort of beginning officially. And uh, we're going to start to see, you know, bid books and bids and, you know, all the steps that happen in the typical team sale actually come to fore here in the coming weeks and months. And, and something's going to happen here. But again, this is something where that wave of transition, you know, almost can't come soon enough. Yeah, it will take some time, Eric. And, uh, you know, the selection of Molus was interesting to me. Molus does have good experience in the sports space. They work with Todd Bowley on his purchase of Chelsea. They worked on the Atlanta Hawks deal. They have a lot of experience as a firm in sports betting and media, but they are not necessarily as entrenched in the sports industry as, let's say, Allen & Co. And I do wonder at some level whether Sarver wanted to hire a firm that was very experienced, but also not kind of in the middle of the entire establishment. So right. again, we'll see see how that role plays out. I would also mention, and again, as you know, my day job is as an investment banker. So I, I, I know a little bit about the processes. While Molus will be involved in, in putting together the marketing materials and the data room and, and all of that, a big part of this role is the vetting of buyers. Do they actually have the capital available? There's a lot of people that have a lot of net worth but they don't necessarily have the liquidity. Is this a buyer that can pass the NBA ownership votes and and all of the requirements there? So a lot of the, I don't think there'll be any shortage of interest in this team. It's really going to be more about finding the right fit and the the right party that's going to pass through all of these, uh, these potential roadblocks. 
Yeah, and, and we've mentioned this a little bit in the past that there's already been some boldface names sort of thrown out there as potential bidders, whether it be a Bob Iger, Jeff Bezos. Uh, you know, there's been some big names that were sort of thrown out here, and and certainly folks like that have the liquidity. But it's it's that sort of second piece in terms of being a league partner because essentially what's and we've obviously had this unfortunate issue now with Sarver that vetting that was already very important is even more so that they're bringing somebody into the lodge here and somebody that's really going to work well with the other with the league office and the other 29 potentially soon to be 31 teams are they going to work well and work collaboratively to sort of drive uh you know growth overall for the league and the sport and, and you know that's that's a harder question to answer yeah and there are you know each each potential bidder may also bring unique issues or potential conflicts or things to address. So for example, Lorraine Powell Job's name has been mentioned, but she already owns a part of the monumental sports Washington Wizards. So right. that would be something that would need to be addressed. Bezos has been mentioned in the press, but I don't know what that means for Amazon's ambitions potentially to be more involved in NBA business. We saw Michael Rubin effectively sell his stake in, in the Sixers because right. so many of the fanatics businesses were in a sense on the other side of the table in terms of negotiating with the NBA. So there's little quirks and issues surrounding uh, potentially all of the bidders. But the other thing I think to, to keep in mind is because the NBA has allowed private equity into the mix uh, in a meaningful way, you could actually see one of these high net worth parties partner with private equity, which can put in up to about 30% of the purchase and come in price. at the front end. And, and you have debt that could be used. So yes, I think you certainly need somebody with a lot of liquidity, but there are some mechanisms to kind of put together uh, pieces of this purchase price that, that could be helpful. And that feeds into everything that we've been talking about in recent weeks in terms of all of these new funds coming in with a, with a big pot of money and a, and a broadly stated thesis of getting involved in sports and entertainment here. And usually how the, the arctoses of the world have come in as sort of as a follow-on basis where an existing owner sort of brings in for a recapitalization of the team. What you're suggesting is something that's coming in as a sort of pre-baked, you know, in the initial purchase. I, I think we could absolutely see that. And I, this is an attractive team for many reasons. It's a great market. The team has performed well. You know, betting is legal in the state. We talk about uh, some of the growth opportunities with the NBA in terms of media rights and their globalization. So I do think that private equity will be very interested in this. And it isn't anymore just Arctos and Dial. We've seen CVC, we've seen other uh, private equity funds uh, get involved. And so I think you could see not only a bidding war among the various uh, high net worth people, but I could also see a lot of competition among private equity to try to get a piece of this opportunity. Yeah, this is a growth market. This is something that, you know, this was already a robust market, but you, you, you know, you talk to certain folks and they see a lot of population growth in future years, folks coming over from California, looking for a lower cost of living and so forth. And, uh, you know, and you got the Super Bowl coming up there in a few in a few months, and so yeah, this is this is a big market for the NBA and one that they certainly want to get right. And you know, on a top line basis, one that's going to fetch a big number. Certainly, two billion appears to be the starting point for the Suns and Mercury, and potentially could go beyond two point five into a new North American record. I think that's very possible, Eric. And while a lot of the speculation has focused on some of the national names that we mentioned. I believe there are like a dozen billionaires who live in 
Arizona, and a lot of those folks have been a bit under the radar screen, but yep. but who knows which of those will step in. Also, the question will be what John Najafi does, who is a significant owner in the team already. Yep. Does John stay? Does John partner with an, an, a new party? Uh, where does he go? So again, there's a lot of local uh, interest in this as well. Yeah, so much more to come on that front. It's going to be really fascinating to see this play out. But another key piece of NBA business that uh, transpired this week is the New York Knicks. This is one of the marquee franchises in the league, a little bit down on its luck in recent years on the court, made the playoffs just once in the last nine years, but still one of the, you know, the great recognized brands of the NBA. They've hired Sport5, the global agency, to help market their jersey patch sale. The Knicks had been with Squarespace, but now this opportunity is being remarketed. That Squarespace uh, contract reaches expiration here. Sport5 had already been working increasingly in the NBA. They've got an expanded engagement with the Chicago Bulls, particularly focused on building uh, fans in France. And they've got a number of other engagements here. But uh, this is one of those, another one of those uh, key sort of sponsorship assets out on the market here. And you know, we've already seen the the Nets and the Lakers and the 76ers and the Warriors all do big business on their latest iterations of their jersey patch. Knicks would certainly like to be in that in that mix with, uh, you know, certainly an eight figure annual uh, number and perhaps a very nice eight figure annual number. Yeah, this should be a good deal, Eric. And before I get into it, I have to say you're you're down on on their luck. Uh, phrase is probably one that uh, some Knicks fans uh, may uh, may smile about. But in any event, they have had a tough time on the court uh, in recent years. But off the court, they continue to have a tremendous business going. That's why and, we're talking about it. They still drive the market 100%. And uh, and so this should be no exception to that. Sport 5, as, as you know, kind of global agency. Neil Glatt, who is a former colleague of mine at the NFL, is now uh, head of the U.S. business. They've been making great strides. I think this is a big win for them. And I'd say overall, this sort of jersey patch market, this helmet market, these kind of special kinds of sponsorship opportunities seem to be very appealing. A, a number of them kind of came to the fore as a, as a result of the pandemic and need for additional revenue and, and obviously some new categories like crypto and betting that were eager to do those kind of deals. But now it's kind of become part of just what is expected, that right. these are going to be huge deals and, and really big opportunities. Now, there's a very interesting local story sort of playing out in terms of a timing basis here that as this Knicks opportunity is now hitting the market with Sport 5, you've got sort of a competing opportunity in essence that if you're a corporate brand with the New York Yankees, and we've talked about this in the past, that they've they've retained legends, uh, which, of which the Yankees already were an equity partner in. So that particular patch opportunity is also on the table right now. And you know, if you're a big corporate brand with tens of millions of dollars to spend. You could go in a, in a couple of different directions here where the Yankees, obviously a spring and summer sport, and you would get integrated all through the Yes Network and Yankee Stadium and so forth. Or conversely, you've got the fall winter opportunity with the Knicks. And similarly, they plan on integrating their Jersey patch partner throughout the scope of MSG Sports, the building itself, the networks and so forth, that this would be a similarly broad activation strategy. And so, again, if you're a major airline or a bank or any of the traditional categories, you know, and certainly the emerging ones that we're, you're discussing, 
you know, you've got these two competing opportunities on the table right now. They are competing, but I think New York is a kind of a big enough market that there will probably be plenty of interest in both of them. In fact, the Islanders just signed Jack Pocket, I believe, for their, as their, for their as home a, helmet. A, yeah, their helmet uh, partner, a, a lottery business. You know, I think a sponsor will probably look at the specifics that are in the package, the demographics that are are most relevant. That, as you say, the time of the year. But again, I think both of them are are pretty compelling opportunities, and I think we'll see. My view would be more traditional categories beverage, automotive, fast food, CPG, potentially betting. I I don't think we're going to see crypto right now, given some of the challenges in the crypto market. In fact, I believe the Trailblazers and their crypto partner, StormX, done after one year, are ending that partnership. So I think we'll see a a blue chip uh, partner for both of those companies. And uh, these numbers could certainly be records. I mean, it's not just the exposure, it's really the integration and the credibility that 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 kind of uh, a sponsorship brings that really makes it appealing. Yeah. And you did mention the Trailblazers and they obviously had to go. They're going in a different direction now and ending that five year deal after one year. But broadly speaking, this is a piece of inventory where, you know, the world has not spun off its axis here. You know, we've had a bunch of new deals in recent weeks on the NHL front here. And I think the, the particularly if you put this in a global context and look at some of the things like Scandinavian hockey teams and how they're festooned and, you know, a NASCAR uniform or what have you, I think the the North American stick and ball leagues here, I think they've been very reserved, very conservative in that sort of broader context here. and. You know, a lot of that hue and cry that you thought you might hear from purists, it really has not come to the fore. And, the, and and certainly in the NBA here, we're in second and third cycles here for big dollars here. And, you know, both from a financial perspective and an aesthetic perspective, this is a program that's really worked out well. It, it really seems to, Eric. I don't know how much fan pushback there has been. I, I don't think much. I'd say that's that the, point. Yeah. the uh, you know, the, the, the patches are not as huge as the some of the, the, you know, the visibility on the jerseys that you might see in Europe. So I think they've kept it somewhat subdued. I think there are other kinds of advertising that have been employed over the past couple of years that are also creating new opportunities. The kind of the virtual ad space has really exploded. NHL's as you know, I did a big move on that as we speak. Yeah. And as, as you know, I advised a company brand brigade on its recent sale to Bruin sports and TGI. Yep. So I, I've seen that space grow during the pandemic. We've seen these Jersey patches grow. And uh, so far, the leagues have seemed to be able to do it in a way that doesn't offend fans. We haven't seen the NFL move into this space, but I've got to believe that there are a number of NFL owners that are still calling the league office every time they see one of these announcements and say, hey, when when can we do this? And so we'll see, you know, whether that ultimately comes to fore. Yeah. And there's a lot of data out already on what the Rams have done. They've got a team patch on their shoulder that basically is essentially the potential size and placement of what a jersey patch would look like. They've been doing this for several years, and I imagine there's a lot of good data, at least internally, in terms of how much those team patches have been seen over the years, and then they can sort of turn that into a potential rate card. Yeah, there, there's a lot of money to be made. And as you say, the, the, the buyer, the sponsor, doesn't just get that exposure. You're sort of bundling in a whole other set of assets that effectively the sponsor has to pay for, whether it's TV media or signage or other things. And it becomes, again, a, v- a very sizable opportunity. 
Well, much more to come. And again, we're certainly going to be interested to see how this uh, Knicks opportunity with Sport 5 plays out. But as we come to the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is catching our eye going forward. And Chris, I will start with you. Yeah, Eric, I, uh, as you know, I love the collectible space. And in that yep. context, very interesting, in- interested to see what happens with this Aaron Judge baseball that the fan uh, caught his 62nd home run. Yep. Uh, there have been reports that an auction house has offered the fan $2 million. We don't know whether he's going to take that or whether he's going to you know, give the ball back to the team or do something else with it. I, I think it's fascinating to me to see where these prices have gone what kind of attention something like that gets. I've even seen media written about whether he's going to get a big IRS bill because he caught the ball or do you only have to pay that when you sell it? And there's all kinds of other stuff going on. But I think in the context of this collectibles uh, boom, these kind of uh, activities are very interesting. Now, the good news for him, this this, uh, fan, his name is Corey Yeomans, Texas-based fan, this game, this Yankee game where Aaron Judge hit the ball was in Arlington, Texas against the Rangers. Corey Yeomans works in the financial industry, works for Fisher Investments. And so he he comes into this situation with himself with a bit of a leg up on how all of those issues you just described in terms of financial management, tax implications, all those sorts of things. So the good news is that you know, compared to a lot of other folks who might have caught that ball, he's he's what you know got a leg up in sort of understanding all of these issues surrounding this. But you are correct; it's a really fascinating uh, situation that's emerged here. Yeah, and I think even my guess is even the tickets to that game, the people who attended that game, I don't know if they have you know hard ticket stubs or they've not. Been, in that state. they've been fetching good numbers on yeah. eBay already. Yeah, so so that's another component of this. So again, very will be very interesting to watch where that goes. Well, and a lot of this surrounds the fascination of Aaron Judge himself, who obviously had this tremendous year and is a bit of a modern-day folk hero. And that sort of leads me to my look ahead in terms of the Yankees are in the playoffs here. And this uh, 2022 MLB postseason is the first of this new 12-team format. This was created in the labor deal that was completed back in March, and we're now sort of seeing that component of the labor deal come to fore, where we have this new wildcard round by the time this episode drops, that new wild card round will have completed, but it was a best of three format expanding from the single one and done wild card games. We've got the additional teams, but part of what I'm getting at here is that the Yankees, along with uh, three of the other top seeds uh, across the uh, postseason tournament here, they've been sort of sitting on their heels for a week, and that's a new component as well. So there's rating implications, there's competitive issues. This could very well all end up in a good place, but this is all very new in terms of how this new format has articulated itself. And I'm just very interested in getting into the weeds and sort of seeing how this new format plays itself out. Yeah, the ratings will be will be very interesting to see, Eric. And I think ultimately, uh, a lot of where this goes from a, a media viewership standpoint may depend upon whether a couple of these teams like the Yankees can progress pretty far in the playoffs. It's, it's kind of obvious, but it, it does drive a lot of the interest or whether they get upset in the early rounds and, and, and are not part of the 
you know, final series, but it's, it's really going to be an exciting time for fans in all these cities. And, and I think MLB should do pretty well overall. Yeah. Your point is well taken. By the time we get to the world series, a Yankee Dodger world series obviously has a whole different set of commercial implications than to say something like Cleveland, San Diego. And I don't mean to pick on those two teams, but those are just basic market size and television realities. But having said all of that, your broader point is well taken. And there's some great stories that can emerge in a lot of places and and certainly happy in particular for the Seattle Mariners who reached the tournament and made the playoffs for the first time in 21 years. You know, what had been the longest playoff drought in North major North American team sports here. So this could go a lot of different ways. And, you know, as we said at the outset, this is a great time of year to be a fan. Yeah, well, look, and your point about Aaron Judge is is, is really critical, too, because yeah, there's people who love the Yankees, who hate the Yankees, but I think there was a groundswell of excitement across the country to see whether he could could break this record. And so I think there'll be tune in and interest just for him because he achieved that. And uh, and so I think that adds to the mix. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for listening. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.